You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Dennis Mortensen is the CEO and co-founder of X.AI, a sophisticated AI platform that solves the problem common to us all, scheduling meetings. As a serial entrepreneur, Dennis has built and successfully exited several companies, including X.AI, which was just acquired by Bezabo, one of the fastest growing event tech companies. Dennis is a recognized leader, author, and university instructor in the field of digital data and analytics. Welcome to Absolute AI, Dennis. Thanks much for having me. So you're originally from Denmark and studied computer science at Skive College? Yep, that is correct. When did you first become interested in computer science? Were your parents tech savvy? For most people, I think no matter what they do, it'll be hard to kind of pinpoint a particular day's often over years where you get exposed to something and you slowly fall in love. For me, though, it was the opposite. And I can pinpoint the day because I actually had other ideas, which doesn't matter. But (laughs) one day on the telly, they showed an old movie called War Games. You might not remember it, but that really touched me. And it was in the early days, uh, super basic, and we would all kind of have a laugh now. But certainly back then, and I must have been 12, 13, it just clicked. And I immediately took out my savings, bought my first computer. The day after, must have worked that the next seven, eight years before starting college. And I was just one of those for where college was mostly about growing up and turning into an adult versus that of picking up a uh, new programming language or something like that. So we had uh, tremendous fun uh, throughout college, uh, <laughs> less, about, uh, less about learning. So we spent the last kind of 10 years prior to that. <laughs> That's good. You, uh, you had your priorities in order at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so right after college, just two years later, you started your first company. Uh, what led you to think, I want to make my own thing? The, the funny thing is I had very clear ideas of me not wanting to be an entrepreneur because my dad, my uncles, cousins, and what have you were all entrepreneurs. I've seen up close exactly how hard it is. Six, seven days a week, home late, my dad falling asleep in front of the telly, all the things that comes along with just running your own thing, which is not easy. So I thought, how about I just take that CS degree once done, I take my bicycle, go out to IBM, get a desk, and get cranking. And in my end of the world, well, that means you leave at four, you get seven weeks of vacation, and it's all really just a very different kind of lifestyle to that of uh, running your own things. And that was the plan, but somehow uh, it did pan out like that. <laughs> and I actually worked it um, all the way up to the end. And the only reason that I briefly thought I would make a small entrepreneurial run was the company that, which I worked for in college when bankrupt. I did game development. And in my kind of disappointment of them kind of going uh, belly up, I had my counsel buy the assets of that company. And back in the day, you could buy software for 
a different cost than what you can do today. And I ended up assembling the team, finishing whatever game we were working on and selling it to the distributor and made what I thought back then was a uh, small fortune. Hindsight, not really. But, uh, you know, out of college, anything above $10 is a fortune. And I uh, kind of thought, you know what? Now that I, that I have a few monies in my pocket, how about I take all of it and invest into a venture of my own, quickly lose it, and then I take my bicycle and go out to IBM and go work for them. But I started this log analysis slash agency type company in the mid-90s or what we would back then call an internet company, which doesn't mean anything now. But back then, that actually meant something. And if you want to start an internet company, doing it in the mid-90s, it's not poor timing. So did that from June 96 to April of 2000. And if you ever want to exit a company throughout the dot-com boom, you want to do it in April 2000. So I did it <laughs> right at the top. And I wish I could tell you that I've seen the future and I knew exactly that we were coming to the end. Now I did. I was as optimistic and naive as everybody else in that market. It just happened to be that my timing was slightly better than some of the others. So that kind of gave me a slightly bigger pile of money in my pocket and kind of a signal of perhaps this is your... Uh, lot in life. And I then turned entrepreneurship into a uh, lifelong career versus that of the um, one-off uh, venture. I want to skip ahead a little bit because I know you've done so many great companies, but I want to talk about your latest company that you've been working on that you founded in 2014. It was just acquired by Isabel. But before we get there, I want to hear about your idea, how you designed it, how you built this sort of autonomous agent to help us all on a problem that every single person, especially in the time of COVID, has had to deal with on a almost daily basis. So again, if you and me team up tonight, this weekend, get a couple of beers, some pizzas, go to the whiteboard and try to come up with an idea, I would be somewhat skeptical of that being a good idea. Not skeptical of whether you and me can come up with something and follow up with it. That is the easiest part. As in, two beers in, we come up with an idea, we go into detail. No, they just uh, very easily become you know, fun and exciting. It doesn't mean that it solves any problem, though. It just means that you and me got excited about something. That could be a particular type of technology, a particular market vertical, a particular set of something. Now, I try to do the opposite, though, which is to not come up with good ideas because that is, again, in my own opinion, just unrealistic that you close your eyes, wake up, and now I have a good idea. What I try to do instead is just walk around, live my life, and take note if there are things that don't work the way they should or to the point where I actually get annoyed or disappointed. That's a thing where I, as a consumer, am disappointed. Why was that not solved? Kind of like you standing in line at Bank of America thinking, this is porn. <laughs> Why don't I start a retail bank? Because this can't be it. I think this can't be the best possible banking experience that one can make. Then you just add that to your list. Then throughout the years, while you're working on your kind of current venture, just add pain to a list. And what I did throughout the prior venture, which was a predictive analytics venture, 
was just run that venture full focus, day in, day out, but still on my phone, I run my little list of eight. And whenever I spot something, I just add it to that list. And if you sit alone in your underwear on a Thursday night at 11 p.m. trying to set up two or three meetings, you're not excited. You're a little bit angry. I said, is this my life? Because I thought it would be different. And then just add that to your list. Because the only solution seemed one for where, well, I can only escape this if I read some sort of uh, level in the organization or take on the cost as the entrepreneur to get either an office manager, a personal assistant of sorts. And that, you know, pick a number in New York, 60, 70K, seems like a luxury I just couldn't get myself to kind of extract from our budgets for where I'd rather have a half another engineer and we could do kind of more product features. So I never did it. I just sat for 20 years straight alone in the dark, scheduling meetings. When I came back and looked at that list, that particular pain was just on the list many times for where multiple times I kind of just sat thinking, this needs to be solved. And it can't be at uh, 70K. It needs to be at some other level. So that was certainly the kind of catalyst to us kind of getting started. Then, uh, and I'll spare you the long kind of uh, validation process that I run, but certainly one of the steps is I invite a set of kind of friends to see if they cannot help me disqualify the idea. Don't help me fall in love. Me as the entrepreneur, you can just poke me two times and I'm gay. Let's, let's do this. So try to help me come up with reasons for me to not do this. And as we started to kind of uh, come up with reasons, it was just uh, hard to see why we shouldn't do it. Doesn't mean that it's a guaranteed success, but there are certainly enough arguments that could have me prove why it could potentially be a viable idea. Then I brought the team back together and we took one particular bet, which was us jumping into the kind of language universe. A language is just not a solved science where we don't really yet know how to make meaning of text. We can make all sorts of predictions on unstructured text but we don't have yet machines that actually understand the meaning of it. But you might be able to carve out a corner of the language universe and make meaning of language in relation to how we actually set up meetings. So brought the team back together, started to collect some data, and uh, got cranking on this idea of perhaps we can just uh, assemble this intelligent agent, not as $70,000 and as a human, but as a machine, and at $8.00, might be able to understand the same. And this meeting, by the way, was set up in kind of very similar ways where I must have set something for where, hey, Melody, I'm up for that. Let's find, uh, you know, 50 minutes on the calendar come end of June. And somehow that uh, resulted in you and me, you know, being on this. So today, that was just super exciting. It turned out to be much, much harder than we imagined. And footnote to the footnote to the footnote, uh, any startup is uh, usually one of two challenges, and you should try to not make it uh, two out of two challenges. It's either a tech-slash-science challenge of some sort or a market challenge. So take Airbnb. There's nothing in that technology that you and me could build. So that's not a tech-science challenge. doesn't mean they don't have fantastic technology. They do. It's a market challenge for where, how can we convince the market that this is a good idea? And could that be adopted? Vice versa. The self-driving car, I don't think you've written an article yet for where people say, I'm not sure we need those self-driving cars. I said, 
that doesn't add any value. Everybody's just completely convinced that that's a good market idea. We just don't know how to build them yet. We're working on it. So you should try it only to pick up one of these two. And we had the same, which is that nobody really pushed back on the idea that, nah, I love scheduling meetings. That's kind of my favorite part of the day. <laughs> nobody said that. Right. Everybody said, I bloody hate that. If you can come up with some idea that can solve it, I'm game. So it's primarily a tech challenge. But again, it was much, much harder than we imagined. And I could go into great detail on each one of the components in that challenge. Let's get into it. We can get jiggy. Let's get into the, the, technical, the technical challenge. Because as you said, this is an NLP model that is trying to understand and process natural language. And you picked out a small portion of the, you said the universe of language. So to break down for me how you, how you began to focus in on, on those areas, how did you break it into a taxonomy and, and begin to gift a machine with something that we learn sort of automatically by being in the world as children? These problems can very quickly become whole world problems where I need to solve one thing, but to solve that, I need to solve two other things. To solve those two things, I need to solve five other things. And to solve those five, I need to be a human. <laughs> they can very quickly uh, escalate and there's no uh, model you can come up with. There's no uh, source of data that can provide you that truth. So the thing that I was the most afraid of was that I couldn't come up with a finite space. But this whole idea, which sounds plausible when you just say it out loud, that the meeting scheduling universe is a finite space which you could extract from the remainder of the universe. It sounds true. You just don't know it's true. It might just mean that really any meeting scheduling conversation is a conversation that will, in the tail, end up being the full pool of conversations that we can have. It's not finite. So what we tried to come up with initially was an idea for where how many distinct intents do we think exist in this universe? As in new meeting, reschedule, cancel, running late, make me optional, make you mandatory. What can happen here? And if I can't come up with a finite list, then there's no way I can ever come up with any model that'll be able to kind of predict anything if I don't even know what the end of this list looked like. So that was the very first part of the journey. And again, you try to go to the whiteboard and see, ah, how hard could that be? You said pretty much all of them, then I'll add another seven, then that must be it. But there's just things that only happen for every 10,000 meetings. And when you start to see something that happens for every 10,000 meetings, how do you know then that there's not something that happens every 80,000 meetings? Or what's every half million meetings? And that the tail is just, again, not just a long tail and there's no end to it. We need to make sure that there was a drooping tail that is finite. And that was perhaps the first many years before we could conclusively say, we've run through enough meetings for we now know over months, we have not seen any new intents. So in the beginning, we saw, ah, well, this we haven't seen. We used to come up with a new intent for this. And that kind of uh, expands our universe. And it was always really scary because we thought we reached the end. But at some point, we actually thought we now have a good enough understanding of this particular universe. Just like a self-driving car is not going to run 
really on a model of the real world. It'll run on a model of some sort of simplistic version of the real world that exists of uh, other vehicles, pedestrians, bicycles, signs, and what have you, whatever objects you believe should exist uh, in that universe. But it also needs to be finite. You can't have some idea of here's an object I don't know what is, which then your kind of deterministic kind of decision engine don't know what action to take. I said, I don't know whether this is a plastic bag or a vapor, but let me just kind of carry on. Uh, that doesn't seem like a good decision for your uh, decision engine. You probably need to uh, know exactly what is in front of you, certainly for the self-driving car, with a high degree of accuracy. So that was the first challenge. The next challenge, and we did come up to some conclusion of it being finite, uh, or certainly being able to survive should something arrive, which we did not know about, and simply just ignore it. And because that wouldn't derail it, the meeting would still be able to kind of uh, move forward. The other one that wasn't immediately clear to me, at least, was that, and again, it's not as black as white as, as this, but there's probably two types of AIs or types of predictions that you can make. There's low accuracy predictions for where whatever prediction you make, it is of value. Then there's high accuracy predictions for where if you don't reach a certain kind of threshold, anything which you make is really not of value. And uh, let me explain that. Meaning uh, if you upload a picture to Facebook in an hour from now with you and four friends and it picks out three faces, well, that's 60% accuracy. Uh, with four, but it's actually them having picked up on three faces that you don't need to tag, should you be one of those who want to kind of tag your pictures. And you just take joy in them having done that. And it's actually 60% of value for where you would otherwise been forced to do all five faces yourself. Well, that's interesting. There's a whole space of applications for where anything we should do is a value add. That's great. And you can survive with very low accuracy and just keep kind of working on it and become better and better. And whenever you become a little bit better, it's just uh, added value. Then there's the other one, which is high accuracy for anything but a dramatic degree of uh, accuracy is the same as you not having done anything. As in, let's say, uh, take some high number. 80 predictions goes into some set of steps in the dialogue. If the meeting don't get scheduled, me getting 78 out of the 80 correct is of no value. There's no joy for you. You say, you know what, Dennis? The, the meeting didn't get scheduled. I didn't meet up with him or he came on another day. But you know what? I'm sure he made a lot of good predictions behind the scenes. No, it's just bullier. You didn't do the meeting. That was uh, not clear. And I think anybody who attacks any space should have some understanding of, am I in one or the other bucket? So if you're in the kind of high accuracy bucket or any other kind of monitor you want to apply to that uh, bucket, you are in a scary place for where everything you do will have bullion outcomes, good or bad. No, cannot, there's no sliding scale. Either the car don't hit any pedestrians or it will hit a pedestrian. And in this night where it hit a pedestrian, that car just ate on the road. So we were in that space and uh, that took some time before that kind of fully crystallized for me and how hard that would be and how we would probably need to change some of our designs, product designs, so that we could flip the responsibility from me to the actual kind of customer. And that took a lot of design changes. And so how did you flip that to make it make the onus on them rather than always on you and your product? It's a good question. And uh, we did a ton of things. Well, I'll pick a few here as, uh, as examples. First, we took a set of design choices early on for when in interviews, most customers will come 
to conclude that what I really want, if I could afford it, would be that personal assistant, Tom, who can sit in my office. I can just kind of send an email and ask him to do anything. You know, that was their, their fantasy. And we kind of implemented against that fantasy because they were all very clear. That might not have been the best decision, to put it uh, politely, because what they really needed was assistance to them doing the job, not fully outsourcing the job to this intelligent agent, which, which cannot be a human. It's not like we reached that level where we can replicate a human. I now need to figure out what can the software do so you feel you don't have to do all the grunt work. You are still the boss here. You're still the one scheduling the meeting, but we actually initially in our designs, very clearly, and in our positioning and communication and all of that made it clear that you have now uh, extracted yourself from the responsibility and giving it to this intelligent agent. And we need to kind of uh, reposition it and make it clear that it is your responsibility. We can do a lot of good work, but it's on you. Even just kind of having that mindset so that if something goes wrong, it is you who probably did a mistake. Kind of like, you don't call up Microsoft if uh, one of your spreadsheets aren't working exactly as you hoped for. You just assume there's some sort of circle of logic in my little spreadsheet here that didn't kind of pan out as I hoped for and uh, the model wasn't correct. But it's not Excel's error. It is your error, right? So there's plenty of software, or actually most software, where you actually just accept that. So that was the first, just trying to at least both communicate and design against that. I'll give you a couple of examples here. So we spent eight, nine months perhaps working with some idea of common sense for where even if you set your scheduling hours on Wednesdays from 9 to 5.30 and if your friend from Hong Kong is in town, you're probably willing to meet with him if he's only in town for one day at 5.45. As in, that's common sense. Now, we spent a lot of time and energy and resources in kind of implementing the idea of that so you could have some elasticity attached to your scheduling hours. People didn't get it. They got it when we explained to them, but they immediately went for, this doesn't work. I've told you, 5.30, how much AI do you need to see that 5.45 is later than the 5.30? And you know how the internet works. They're quite vocal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Then upon explaining to them that, hey, we actually spent a considerable amount of time in coming up with good ideas for what to do with scenarios where we believe and we have models to come to that conclusions that you'd rather meet a little bit later than not meeting at all. That's great, but it didn't compute. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. It seems like you shifted from a technological thing that you were trying to solve, and then suddenly you were making a market fit and pitching to the market that this is a really good idea, right? Here's a good footnote. Whenever you end up in a scenario where you are forced to educate the market, you should immediately just uh, pause and reflect because doing market education is extremely expensive. You can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on trying to educate the market into something and it's just uh, almost impossible. So I'm just very scared 
whenever I end up in a setting where I need now to educate the market, they need to immediately understand what is going on here. It doesn't mean that you can't have kind of proper onboarding and uh, kind of tool tips and education and for enterprise accounts, uh, right. customer success teams, all of that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if you're in a position where you need to kind of reframe it and rewire the full population of your users, that is scary. Uh, you should try to avoid that at all costs. Now, what we did instead was to move away from the idea that we were supposed to replicate and recreate TAR. Now, our job is to create software that assists you. And as we started to kind of move away from that, in that scenario, what I should, what TAR would do is to not reach out to Melody. He would just do it. And you would just accept the fact that Tom is probably smart enough to know that, hey, this is what you should do. And you wouldn't actually reach out and tell Tom, hey, how stupid are you? You just assume that he's uh, taking all the variables into consideration. Right. So we flipped things around and started to add a software. Hey, I now know your scheduling hours for Wednesday end at 5.30. The only day we can make this work with Suzanne is 5.45 on the same day. I went ahead and scheduled it. But if you can't make it, here's two actions. You can cancel it or you can reschedule it or turn it into a virtual meeting instead. Now that's on you. Even that kind of little kind of uh, UX change where I'm going to tell you what's going on, give you a set of uh, distinct options you can kind of take. That worked really well. Most people actually stuck to the decision that we would have taken. But doing it so behind the scenes just didn't work. Doing it in front of we would over-communicate and do things where you would actually get annoyed if Tom, your human assistant, emailed you all the time on little details. People actually liked when it was software because they felt okay in ignoring it. Where sometimes if your human colleague kind of emails you something, you feel obligated to that. Santa, okay, thanks much. Yes, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Here you just kind of archive, archive, yes, yes, archive, change. So that worked uh, very well. But it was only when we moved away from this uh, trying to replicate the human experience that we start to kind of see uh, success on that front. And that reminds me of something that is talked about a lot right now, which is explainable AI and how a lot of decision-making is sort of in a black box and people are, you know, incredulous about how these decisions are being made or if they're made in in the right way. And we want to be able to peer into that. And so that makes sense to me that that this is something where that over-communication lets me know, okay, I know, I know the thought process. I understand, you know, why you're making the decisions that you're making. And now I can feel more comfortable giving away some of the ownership of something that is actually really important in my life. It's exactly that. Often when people talk about explainable AI, it is the black box prediction for where I didn't get the credit card I had hoped for. I didn't get the rate on my mortgage as I had hoped for. And I don't know why. And the agent up at Citibank can't even explain to me why it is. All you can say is that you did get it. And that is just not acceptable. And those kind of innocent examples, there's examples way more dramatic, which says Conrad was supposed to uh, get parole on some uh, piece of software in some county made a suggestion that have that uh, role board see him not get that. It's like, what happened here? How do we get to that kind of conclusion? Because this whole kind of thing is uh, not just scary, but uh, potentially sad, right? We've seen that once you even just extract yourself from the black box, but even the kind of surrounding to it, 
if there's any such thing, you should try to over-communicate, especially if you don't require any action. So many of the things that we communicate, we are super clear about the fact that I am now taking an action. I'm not giving you more work. You can scan this out. You can just ignore it if you generally cannot trust us. And then you can go back and think of it as some sort of receipt. But you are fully in the know and we are kind of in a partnership here. Another kind of great design we did along those lines for where when we made predictions and people just didn't get it. Why did you do this uh, on Friday? I'm available tomorrow. I wanted the meeting as soon as possible was to kind of read back to people. This is what you said. This is what we understood. This is your current kind of preferences. And this is what's about to happen. And for, for the most part, Another footnote, <laughs> the single biggest category of tickets in our system was around what we call perceived errors. So anybody who runs a piece of software will have a support system and a million kind of tickets kind of coming in. Many of them will be kind of education, technical bugs, and so on and so forth. We had this whole new category that, that we kind of baptized perceived errors. And a perceived error was one for where they thought it was an error. But upon explanation, they actually accepted that there was not an error and then liked the decision that we took. But it still ended up as a ticket in a system for where they thought we were in the wrong. And what you know is for every ticket you see, there might be nine that you don't see. It was either just churn-inducing events or people getting slightly uh, disappointed. Then it's a future kind of churn-inducing event on something else. You don't even know that the damage was done kind of earlier. And... In that kind of explainable AI setting where we open up and told them, this is what I've understood, that worked wonders. That readback, I think, of all the features, and it was not kind of super hard, was one of those that has just uh, brought us so much closer to our customers. And then fully understanding, it, oh, yes, I did say that. <laughs> so they'll say things like, let's set something up on Thursday. And they'll come back and say, why didn't you schedule this? He's not in town on Thursday. You said Thursday, we are on a she. And in this particular design, we actually stick to Thursdays. Right? Because it could be that uh, you had the event on Friday and you can't do it any other day. So we're reasonably strict. So when they see that readback, ah, oh, you know what? Let me change that. What I meant was actually Thursday or later. Yeah, that's not what you said. Or let's meet first thing tomorrow morning. Then we set something up and you email that at 1 a.m. Oh, damn it. I actually meant today morning. I just haven't got to bed yet. So there's all these little kind of quirks, human quirks, that we certainly try to kind of design for, but sometimes will be too literal. And they'll see, I know that's what I said. It's not what I meant. Well, go correct it. So that worked very well. Uh, very long answer to your, I also agree, explainable AI and any way you can kind of attack that is probably for a positive. Absolutely. Yeah, with, with training, a lot of the examples, there there seems to be the sort of strict things that you have to train on, date and time, location, things that don't seem very abstract. But then in your, in your examples, there's a lot of things, like you said, Thursday or later, there are extra stories that people put in as to why they're going where, with whom, and how did you set up a system in a way to train the model to distinguish between what of this information is important and pertinent that I need to act off of and which of this is just sort of superfluous. Which happens all the time. 
especially when people want to reschedule something. They feel obligated, especially if there's another human in the loop, to write little essays <laughs> on why they're about to reschedule. Hey, I'm having this thing with my daughter on Wednesday at one. Oh, that means I now spot a full expression in some text called Wednesday at one, but it's actually a negative time, which is him specifically saying, that's the reason that I can't do today because I'm having this thing tomorrow and I need to travel for it. And that little story, it would have been much, much better for me if you could just uh, not write that. (laughs) But they do. So you kind of mentioned the three distinct entities that we need to be in control of. To ball expressions, time and date, locations, where do we meet, some address, uh, some virtual location, some phone number, and people. Who's in the meeting? What is their status? Those are the three distinct entities. But I think outside of that, uh, we had to write really specific labeling guidelines for, say, temporal expressions in our particular universe. Just for that, I think at some point the guidelines were 36 pages and low just for temporal expressions. So the labelers just for that would somehow have to kind of uh, label against the idea of how do I actually label this? So you say, let's do a some afternoon, Thursday or Friday next week, and perhaps Wednesday if you can't do <laughs> the first two. Uh, so afternoon certainly belongs to some of these. And one of them might be a negative time, which is Wednesday. It was certainly ambiguous in the way you described it. So we had really elaborate guidelines. But I think uh, before that, you probably need to figure out the difference between what you can extract from the unstructured information that uh, comes in. Basically, you can extract it with 100% accuracy, you can't. But if you could, what decisions do you take? What actions do you take? Coming back to that self-run car, let's say you understand all the objects in front of you, as in all your cameras and lighters, or what have you, you have all the information. It is true and honest, no errors. Yeah, but what action do you take? Just like humans, they also saw everything, but they also take actions. Some of those actions aren't good. So you probably need to uh, make a difference between what you extract what you can see and understand, and your decision engine. And for us, we did separate the two, meaning that we had one challenge of trying to understand what is going on. If we do believe we understand it, what actions do we take? And that could be stress for a time, make somebody optional, have the whole thing reschedule. I think that's what you said. So we had this kind of deterministic decision engine that upon feeding it with the information, could figure out what is the next step. And we then designed that. And that was deterministic from beginning to end as a fixed path through that engine. Kind of like the way you're supposed to drive a car, the science and the other cars of the road kind of determine what action you're about to take. But then things happen. Right. <laughs> if you're a human. So honestly, I have, I have a lot more questions, but I see the time is slipping away from us very quickly. It's, it's been so awesome talking with you. I'm just going to end with two more questions. One of them is about the future of work. You, uh, you gave a talk on that. And I thought that was really interesting. You said that everyone is be- becoming a manager. We're all now transitioning into knowledge work. And I just wanted to hear your perspective on the future of work and how your technology that you've developed and other technologies are changing the landscape of our working lives in the future. There's a version of the future as I see it at least, for where the conversational UI, this whole idea of us being able to speak to our computers, 
whether through voice or us writing something in an input box somewhere, but the machine understanding what I wanted to do. I think that machine has probably come in the form of intelligent agents that are able to do distinct jobs. I don't think it's going to arrive in this all-knowing AI where some press release come next week from Google is, ta-da, we solved it. That seems not possible. It seems much more likely that you'll have 10,000 some odd highly specialized agents, one that can schedule meetings, one that can do one part of your travels, one that will do your receipts, one that will do many other things. And your job now as the knowledge worker is to figure out who am I to hire? So usually if you run a team in any organization, you'll just go hire human beings at a high cost. You will certainly continue to do so, but I do think you will extend your team with a pool of intelligent agents. And it'll be on you to figure out who's to hire, how to train them, how best to deploy them on failure, how to best terminate them and find new agents. And I think it's going to be almost eccentric at some point in the future. If you arrive at a new job and they ask you how you would solve something, if the answer is not one for where, well, these are the agents that I've deployed in the past to solve for these particular processes. And if that's the case, any person at any level will somewhat become a manager because the things I just described here in finding good agents, training them, onboarding them, keeping them happy, as in highly successful in doing the very processes that you hope they would be doing and terminating them if they are not and then finding new. Well, that's the job of a manager. And I'm not so sure that anybody at 22 right out of college knows how to be a good manager. So there might just be a new skill set, especially if we talk about uh, machine agents, that we need to kind of pick up. So I, I can certainly see a version of that in the future versus uh, that of everybody comes in blank. It is just you and uh, the knowledge that you have. Give me a laptop and I'll get cranking. I think you will uh, come in and what they hire is actually you and a little army behind you. Okay, well then my last question, this one's just for fun. If you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2141, what does that look like? And have the robots taken over? I am super optimistic. I still believe in this idea of the 15-hour work week or whatever we end up with. At some point, it must materialize. I can't see why... The majority of our awake hours are spent at work. Doesn't mean that we won't do creative stuff, but it might not be attached to the firm. So I certainly see that happening. 20 years, but then again, we've been saying this every 10 years for the last 100 years. <laughs> but somehow, at some point, there must be an inflection part. And actually, it's becoming ever worse. So I think if you look at the US, we're working ever more hours compared to kind of uh, what we did in the past. But I think this could be where the curve kind of flips to the other side. Completely naive. I'm unsure most people would think that, but I'm a believer. Number two, I think we'll have even looser relationships to the firm or the corporation for where it used to be very strong, strict relationships, meaning very normal to see somebody walk in at his 20 second birthday, stay there for 30 years, get the gold watch, and you know, retire. If I hear somebody today who did that, I'm kind of baffled. Uh, now you're almost 
odd if you stay, you know, five plus years in the, in the same place. But I think that relationship will come ever looser, especially now when you work from home. You're going to become more of a, uh, think of it more like professional sports for where you have a skill set. You go deploy that with uh, different teams for different seasons to win uh, different trophies. And you might even uh, play for multiple teams at the same time. And that will not be uh, abnormal. And that uh, idea of working less with looser relationships, that's where I see myself in, uh, in 20 years. It could be that it's same company, long hours, and I'm way off. But uh, I, I'm looking towards that horizon. <laughs> so you're used to working six, seven days a week, all, you know, more than anybody else, I'm sure. <laughs> but I, I like that kind of utopian future. That's, that's been one of the promises that I don't think has totally materialized yet. But I, I do think that we're at an inflection point. But society is set up in a way that your infrastructure, your health insurance, your security, your pension, everything is tied up with your job. And so I think for that to happen, we are already seeing this with freelancers. You know, it's not just the companies that have to change. It's the support system of the whole society that would have to shift to this new way of, of living and working. That could turn into the four-hour kind of podcast. <laughs> right, there must right. be some, some change to some of the very parameters that you mentioned, including our healthcare, that will change over the next coming decades. So that individuals aren't slaves of the organization where they would like to do something else but don't know how to escape it because a large part of my life is attached to it. And if I extract myself from it, I actually don't know what to do. So that must change. That you can add to my list of that kind of utopian future that, uh, that I dream of. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Dennis. This was a fabulous conversation. Time well spent. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope to talk to you again soon. Cheers. Bye that. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please help spread the word by telling your friends or writing a review. 